So we are at a place in um, the teaching of Jesus. We've gone through five antitheses. That is, Jesus said, I say to you, or excuse me, they have said to you, but I say. And we're in the last and final one, kind of the capstone. And um, the, uh, the issue that it addresses is, is how is the disciple of Jesus, that is you and me, living in the 21st century, assuming you're a dis- disciple, how is it that we're supposed to relate to our enemies? Now, as I was reflecting on my own life and, and just vocabulary that we t- tend to use in Christian circles, we don't really use that, that word enemy very often. We use it um, maybe with really, really bad guys like Hitler, or we'd use it maybe with um, Satan like he's the enemy. But we, we, we don't typically talk about um, lower, maybe more mild adversaries that way. Maybe it's because we just don't want to use that speech or we think it's, it's wrong. Um, but there are people who are adversaries in our life um, who I think that term enemy would apply to. You know, you see somebody at the grocery store and, and you realize immediately that um, there is animosity between you and so you jump into, a, um, into a, another aisle just to avoid contact. That's probably a sign. And, and by the way, not, not because they talk too much, but because there's an issue, right? Um, if that's the kind of thing, chances are there's kind of an, um, maybe an adversarial feeling that you have. And, and so this particular text is, is, is very... Um, contemporary. It's very um, true to life. It's, it's very pliable r- right here and right now. There's so many things that, that, that um, and reasons why people feel a sense of uh, adversarial um, conflict. I mean, politics, theology, um, religion, um, you know, there's, I, I know because I have people on both sides of the political fence that there are people who are Democrats who feel like the rabid Republicans are the problem and they're the adversary, they're the bad guys. And then I have Republican friends who believe it's the domineering, you know, Democrats that are a problem, the reason the country's going down the tube. And so there's this feeling, they may not call themselves enemies, <coughs> but there's a sense of the adversary, like they're the opposition, uh, same is true in the big whole racial conflict in our country. There's people who believe that they wouldn't say enemy, but they feel this adversarial relationship between people of one particular color or one particular ethnicity. And, and so it's, 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 it's all around us, um, people on both sides feeling like the other is the adversary. Same thing with religion. You know, it's, it's, um, it's possible for Christian people, and I, I know a number of people who feel this way. They wouldn't say this, but they feel like the more extreme radical Islam are the enemy. Um, and then you have the, the in-house fights. You have the Calvinists who think that the Arminians are the enemy and the Arminians who think the Calvinists are, are the enemy. And so it's, that is, it's, 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 it's out there, right? It's, 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 it's our world. Um, and there are these lines of demarcation that separate friend from foe, and we feel them. Well, those are kind of along the ideological, religious, theological, racial lines. But then, then there's things that are closer to home. Just people in your life that you feel like um, are in opposition to who you are. Just ju- maybe judgmental. Um, maybe an overly domineering uh, mother-in-law that treats you like a child. And every time you go into her presence, you just feel attacked. All that to say that, that um, when Jesus talks about how we're supposed to deal with enemies, this is, this is stuff that goes on all around us right now. And my guess is um, you could probably come up with five or six names that you could place in your enemy hall of fame um, of people that you avoid, maybe you shut down, or maybe you talk evil about, you complain about, and they probably are in that enemy hall of fame. Now I want you to 
think of those actual names because I, I want this at the end of the day to, to, be, to be applicable. You'd be uh, surprised, maybe not surprised, that Jesus faced the same thing in his time. Like the whole, the whole culture in which he was in was fragmented with fo- foes and friends. Um, number one on the hit list was uh, the Imperial Romans. You know, they were seen as, as uh, oppressive. The Jews hated the pagan Rome, Romans, hated them. They considered them a, a, A-list enemies. But there weren't just the Romans. There were also the um, Samaritans, uh, people who lived in the north, northern part, if you live in Jerusalem. Half-breed, um, unorthodox people that Jewish people would avoid at all costs and actually do anything to, to meet. Um, maybe not a, a, f- a true foe, but certainly not a friend. And then there was all these fractures and fissures within Judaism of the first century. You had the Pharisees who were at odds with the Sadducees um, over theology. Um, You had the Herodians who were at odds with the Zealots. Herodians were Roman sympathizers and the Zealots were were zealously against the Romans. And then you have this other group called the Essenes that camped out in the desert. They were kind of like modern-day Amish people who didn't want to engage with anybody. Uh, That's the world in which Jesus lived, and that's... No different, really, than this world. The names of the players may have changed, but the game's still the same. So what does Jesus say to us, right? That kind of conflict, that kind of foe and friend line, which isn't going to change as long as we are dealing in currency of hate. How, how, How does Jesus want us to live? How does Jesus want me to live? How does he want you to live? And again... I want you to imagine that you're hearing this for the very first time. In the context, and again, I'm I'm betting there are you guys out there, you you feel a sense of, uh, when somebody talks about something that you don't believe in or something that is against you, you feel a sense of angst. Well, imagine Jesus speaking into the context of your angst. There was a, a strike here not too long ago. Well, it was years and years ago now. And I remember it was bitter. And brought up this particular verse with a brother. And, and he became livid. Like this, this hits home if you really listen to it, what he says. This is what he says. First part. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor. Now stop there. That is a direct quote of Leviticus 19.18. He's quoting the scripture in the first part. But you'll notice the quotation doesn't end there. It ends after the next phrase, which is, and hate your enemy. So here Jesus starts off this this sixth antithesis. He says, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now I want you to stop there for a second. Because I think, I believe that there would have been people in Jesus' audience who would have said, yeah, preach it, Jesus. The reason I, I, I know that is because, you know, there were um, scrolls that were unearthed in, in the Dead Sea um, that had this kind of language in it and probably was more prevalent than we know that this was kind of uh, how the Jewish people thought about um, their enemy. It's like, yeah, we love our neighbors, have to love each other, but when it comes to the enemy, it's okay to hate them. So like I said, up to this point in Jesus' teaching, I think they would have nodded their heads and said, yeah, he's right on. So right on, we hate the Romans too. Preach it, brother Jesus. But Jesus isn't going isn't to offer that path to his disciples. It's an entirely different path. 
and, and, and he goes on and he says, but I say to you, but I, and so he is the authorized interpreter of the Old Testament and the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He says, basically, you got it all wrong. You don't just tolerate your enemy. You don't just avoid your enemy. You don't duck down the aisle from your enemy. He says, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you or attack you. That's the path he lays out. It's a, a path. You love and pray for your enemy. That is, it goes against the grain of all of our fallen humanity to do just that. We want to react. We want to shut down. We want to get even. We want to spread rumors or lies or slander. We want to stand up with a, a flag and protest. And Jesus says, love. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I can imagine Jewish audience at this point going, wait a second, are you serious? Like, I actually have to love my ex-wife? I, no more darts at the dartboard? Are you, is that what you're saying? And Jesus is saying, yeah. I mean, it's, it's the hardest thing to love someone who doesn't love you or someone who attacks you or someone who's prejudiced against you or somebody who's, who's judgmental of you to actually love them. It goes against the grain, but it's the way of Christ. I want you to notice two things about those verbs. He says love and pray. Love is very general, right? It doesn't tell us how to love, it just says love. In the, in the scripture, love is more than just a feeling or an affection. It is an action, right? It's, the Bible just doesn't divide those things. So when he says love, he's talking about not only a sense of compassion, but also active kindness. That's what he's saying. But the fact that he leaves it general to me is, uh, is wise because what it allows the disciple to do in his or her own particular context is to decide how best should I love this person who I don't like and doesn't like me, right? Um, that's how God calls us to practice all of the commands of the, of the scripture. He calls us to pray and ask for wisdom. How exactly do I, do I love this person? Um, because it's possible to love someone unwisely and hurt them or make matters worse. If you have a neighbor that doesn't like you and um, that person happens to be mentally um, unstable, you probably shouldn't give them cutlery for Christmas. You get it? If your mother-in-law happens to be overly domineering, and mine, thank the Lord, is not, um, probably not a good thing to give her a book called Boundaries. Just, right? Just kind of like... Like, stick it to the man. That's, that's, that's what that does. Probably not a good way. But a Christian person who's, who's like, in the situation is, has got to be looking and praying, Lord, how can I be a person who, um, who's helpful, shows kindness? Um, how is it that I can love this person in a way he or she needs or he or she can hear? And that does require an, a, 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 a wisdom to do. And by the way, I just need to also say that it's, to love another person isn't always just an act of kindness or just to be nice. Nice and kindness are two different things. Sometimes the loving thing to do is to speak truth in love or a soft rebuke in love. The point being that he gives us a general command, love your enemies, and then he expects us to pray and look and watch for how um, that should be exercised. But the second one is, is to pray, right? Um, so he gives the general command to love your enemy, but then he couples it with prayer, which I think is really important because prayer by very nature is asking for divine intervention. God, I want you to do something that only you can do. 
If I could do it, I wouldn't have to pray for it. He's praying for God to do a work in his enemy's life. Now, just so you know, like the context, he's not talking about praying negative things, like I pray the brakes go out of my boss's car or a flower pot falls on my ex's head. None of that. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about praying for God's favor and blessing upon the person who is harmful to you, um, which in very essence is a redemptive prayer modeled by our, our, our Lord on the cross when he says, and this is a prayer, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And you know in, that gospel, in the Gospel of Luke, the, the, the verb translated, um, and Jesus said, Father, is in a tense that indicates that he did it over and over and over again. Can you imagine Jesus on the cross with his attackers and with his quote-unquote enemies all around him praying over and over and over again, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. That's an amazing prayer in the face of enemies. He modeled it. He did it for us. And you know those two things, to love and to pray for your enemy, actually I think are um, reinforce one another. If you really start praying for somebody, praying for God's favor in their life, you'll find that you will develop an affection for them and a compassion for them. And as you move in that compassion to actually tangibly show kindness or love, and you're getting close enough, you start to realize why they are the way they are, and you find yourself, even with more compassion, desire to pray for them. They, they're meant to go together. So this is, this is the first part. This is the path, right? It's, it's, it's fairly straightforward. Now think of those names, the enemies in your hall of fame. Workplace, family, brother-in-law, sister-in-law, mother-in-law, stepdad. How is it that you're going to follow this path? in that context or with that person. Now the question we'd have to ask here, and Jesus is going to go on to address, is why? Why, why? why would I want to be kind to my stepfather when he's such a horrible person? I'd rather jam bamboo up my fingernails. Right? I can hear some of you thinking that right now. Maybe not bamboo, but maybe you'd like... Nails on a chalkboard. I'd rather slam my hand in a door. But I, my, this person in my life is so despicable, I can't stand to be around him. So why in the world, Dan, would I love this person? Show kindness. Well, Jesus addresses that in the next section or the next verse. That is the purpose behind it. He, he always gives us, not always, but he gives us purpose for, for why we do things. He says, so that you may be sons, so that, so that is a purpose statement, so that you may be sons of your Father, capital F, that's the Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on evil and on the good, he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And so what he's saying is the purpose behind this is to display to the world that you're actually my sons and daughters. In terms of Christianity, the, the apple's not supposed to fall too far from the tree. He says, this is the way the Heavenly Father is with people who believe in him and people who don't believe in him. People who are just, they're walking blamelessly, and those who are unjust, the wicked and the righteous. This is how God treats them. So if you're one of his, you belong to him, then your life, your character, the pattern of your living should actually resemble him, 
right? That's, that's how people will know that you're actually a, a, a disciple of Jesus. And to me, thinking, it's one of the purest forms, purest expressions that you actually know God is that you have a heart like his. Is that a weird sound? Oh, got it. That's awesome. Sorry to draw attention to you. It sounds like a bee, like a bee. Sorry about that. Tell your wife sorry. <laughs> but that's what he says. That's how God is, right? The, 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 the righteous and the unrighteous. Like he is sun and rain, right? We understand that. We're Californians. Like rain, how important is rain? Like we, we, we end up in a drought. We end up without water. We end up with raised water prices and people telling us we can't water our lawns. Crops don't grow. People don't get fed. I mean, people die of starvation if there's no water. He's saying God brings rain, and he brings rain on, 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 on people regardless of their spiritual condition and sun. He brings the sun up every day. And that's, that's really saying something for California, right? You think about, there are, there are, of all the states that I know and have been in, I, I think this is probably the most latently hostile to the gospel and to the things of Christ. Just as, that, 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 that's just, a, I, I think that's just a fact, but you can debate me on that. It's just like, so here's a, here's a, here's a, here's a, here's a, here's a, uh, an area in the country where people despise the teachings of Jesus, much more the morality of Jesus and, and, um, and the gospel and the exclusivity of the gospel that says that there's no other name under heaven by which a man might be saved or a woman might be saved. And they detest it. And yet, you know what? Every day, God brings up the sun. Every day we're blessed with a gift. Everyone's blessed with a gift. Does everybody in California deserve it? Yeah, no. <laughs> Most, nobody does. Some of you have probably heard of, um, not Stephen Hawking, I'm thinking of Richard Dawkins. Um, I read his book, the, the God Delusion. You know, he's a rabid atheist. And reading between the lines of his book, he's an angry atheist. Hates anything to do with God and Christianity. I guarantee you, he got up today and he breathed God's air. He saw God's son and he drank God's water. And God's like, here it is, it's mine. And whatever level of insult you might feel when somebody hurts you, you got to maximize that times infinity because God feels a sense of in, uh, insult and, and offense at unimaginable levels, which is why there is a hell. And yet every day, God shows love to his enemies, right? And, and it goes deeper, right? He doesn't just show love by providing rain and sun, but we're told that every single one of us was an enemy. Every one of us was not a friend to God. We weren't friends. We weren't even acquaintances. God just just brutal enemies and rebels. And yet God came down in the person of Jesus into a context of enemies and wickedness and loved people there bore their sins and their sorrows to the cross, and he died to make us his. That is, he entered the world of enemies to change them. So doesn't it just stand to reason that, that one of the primary ways that we show the world that we actually belong to him is that we're able to cross the divide between friend and foe and minister? It, it, it is. It's just, it, that's what he's saying. Saying we do this to display the fact that we are sons and daughters. Now let me just um, pause and and and, and uh, 
deal with an objection that I have felt in the past in my own life and maybe you feel it in yours. And that is, we have a sense in which if we're angry with somebody, like we would be with an enemy, and yet we're told we're supposed to love them, we feel like we're being hypocritical, like we're being fake if we're angry and, and kind. Do you ever feel that way? It's like, man, my sister-in-law, I cannot stand her. And um, I'm not going to be nice to her because I'm not going to be fake. Ever heard that before? And so I'm not going to be fake, so I'm just, I, I'm not going to love. What you feel is not who you are. Aligning yourself to the truth of Jesus, despite how you feel, is who you are. Or let me put it in God's perspective. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we were, by nature, objects of wrath. Children. So he's mad. Before Jesus got us ticked off at you. He has a very real and a very horrifying anger. And yet the very next verse says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. So he has tremendous anger and wrath towards sinner people like you and me. And at the same time, we're told that he loves us, loves us enough to come down and die for us. So, and, and God is not hypocritical or fake, do you see? He acknowledges his anger, and it is a just anger. At the same time, his love overcomes his anger and takes you and me and makes us part of his family. So if God's not being hypocritical or fake in loving despite his anger, then we shouldn't be either. If you're angry at somebody because they're, they are a, an adversary who has hurt you in the past, you're not being fake if you love Actually, you're being very godlike. Don't let that keep you from, you know, acting. Now, if 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 you're so angry at this person and it's so raw at the at this point that you're afraid you're going to explode and hurt the person, well, yeah, of course, take a cooling off period. But at some point, you have to cross the line, the line of demarcation between friend and foe, and administer wise love. That's what he's saying. That's the purpose. You show the world that you actually believe in the Lord. You show the world that you actually follow Christ because that's, that's, that's what Christ did. There's a famous quote, a man by the name of Alfred Plummer, who gets it, just summarizes uh, what's said here. He said this. He said, to return evil for good is devilish. That's what the devil actually did, returned evil for God's good gift of creating him. To return good for good is human. That's what we do. If someone does something good for us, we'll do it back. It's kind of a capitalistic exchange. To return good for evil, that's divine. So good. People taste the divine when you live this way. They smell the aroma of God and of Christ when you live this way. That's a big part of the point. And last, loving this way, is it makes us unique. It sets us apart. He says... For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? The, the reward is that they love you. It's a mutually beneficial relationship. You get something out of it, they get something out of it. Everybody wins, everybody's happy. If you just love the people who love you, there's, there's nothing unique about it. Everybody on planet Earth loves that way. 
He asks, what reward do you have then? As if, if you only love those who love you, there is no reward, whatever that reward is. Do not even the tax collectors do the same, you know? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? They greet each other, their family. It's my brother, hey, how are you doing? And sister, hey, how are you doing? Family members, cousins. That's what the world does. There's nothing unique about it. Everyone in here loves that way because you get something out of it. It's entirely different when you love someone who doesn't love you. And it's entirely rare. It's different. It goes against the grain. It's unique. It sets us apart when we're able to love as Jesus loved, namely to go across that line of demarcation between friend and foe and actively love another person, that person whose name is in your enemy's hall of fame. Altogether different. You know this, and this isn't wrong. The people we like to hang out with, we gravitate to, are people we like, are the people that we enjoy. If you happen to be a person who loves barbecue and you're a friend of Adam Barngraff, well, this really comes with some benefits, right? That's right. I get to go to Adam's house. I love Adam. He's funny, and he cooks really good food. And you know, next week, my house, and we're going to have quiche. It's going to be awesome. It comes with its benefits and not so much benefits. But you get the idea. It's like it's, there's, there's something in it for you when it's in the context of family or friends. But in loving an enemy, it's entirely different. There's no return. There's no immediate reward. There's no immediate pleasure. How, how, how is it that we can love that way, you know, when the, with no return? And there's guys who, who minister in prisons. You know, they go week after week after week, and they do Bible studies trying to love the enemy, you know, those who are lost, um, a danger to society, only to have these inmates come in time after time, not wanting to hear the gospel, but wanting to get out of their cell. There's no reward in it. There's no, there's no kickback. There's no, hey... Thanks for coming. Day after day, what would prompt a person to cross over that line and just to love people even when they're not loved back? And I think it comes down to this thing called the reward. What reward do you have? In other words, there's a, there's a higher calling. There's a higher reward out there that the, the Christian disciple lives for in loving somebody that is not loving them back. And what is that? What would motivate me to do hard work of loving somebody that doesn't like me, and there's no return on my investment. You can answer that in a number of ways. I'm just going to answer it with two things. One, I think the reward in the, in the, in the immediate context is, get this, is the smile of your father in heaven. The verses immediately following this Talk about giving, that's a manifestation of love, of fasting, and of praying. And in each case, he says, when you do these things, um, these aspects of what it means to love God and love people, then don't do it to be seen by others and rewarded by others, but rather do it so that your Father in heaven sees you and he will reward you. In other words, you're doing it for the pleasure of God himself the pleasure of a father. Now, I know that doesn't, uh, doesn't track or like, get you in the heart, maybe. It does me. 
um, because of my relationship with my father. And I can remember, and there's only a few times that I really was a, was a good kid. Most of the time, I was just selfish living for myself. But there was this one time, I, there was these weeds that were growing up really high in my dad's field. And you couldn't see the traffic when you're backing down the car from his driveway. And so I went out with this handheld sickle. There was no such thing as uh, uh, weed eaters back then. Or if there were weed eaters, we couldn't afford it. So I'm out with a hand sickle. And I cut down all of the weeds that were blocking the, blocking the traffic, blocking the sight to the traffic. And um, I probably spent two or three hours doing it, and I, my hands started to have blisters. And, and there was one reason I did that. This little high point in my otherwise selfish life. <laughs> I just wanted to see my dad surprised. Who mowed down the weeds? And I wanted to hear him say, thank you, Danny. And he came home, he saw the weeds gone, hands were blistered, and that's exactly what he said. He said, thank you. And I just saw him smile, and I just felt so good, you know? And then he took me to ice cream, which was even better, you know? (laughs) The, the, The simple pleasure of a father. Now, just to be clear, we don't earn the pleasure of our father, but... Love, by very nature, desires the pleasure of the loved. If you actually love your wife or your husband, you actually want to find ways to please them, not because you have to earn their love, but because you want to, um, you want to see the joy of them being loved. That's part of, uh, part of the joy of what it means to love, is that we actually desire the pleasure of the object loved. And just to see the smile of my father, to know that your father in heaven, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're going out of your comfort zone, you cross that line and you're like, I'm going to do this. I'm, I'm, I'm going to love this person who doesn't like me. I have to believe that the Lord is just like, that's my kid. You know, it's just the smile of God on your life. That means a lot. That's part of the reward is the pleasure of God himself and the reward that he gives and the second piece of it, so one of it is just the smile of God. The second is, is just being an instrument of, of God's world-changing transformation. People in, in this world don't tend to do this, right? In terms of racial conflict, you don't have people of different races crossing over the line to love each other. They, they huddle in their own places and they cast stones at each other, usually verbal. Rather than, you know, I'm, I'm going to cross over. And when you do... You, like, become an instrument of change. They see that there's something different. And people taste something different. And the ice begins to thaw. This is how it works in the world. And this, is, this was Jesus' strategy of, of changing things. If, in the first three centuries, at least, of the church's existence, people loved this way. They loved people of different nationalities. Because they understood what it meant to be the church. They understood God's character was one to include, bring people in from the Gentiles who used to be enemies. That's, that's the way of the Lord. And it changes things. It changes families. It changes, um, it changes your little neighborhood. It changes dynamics in your office. And I'll just I'll close with this. If you can imagine a context in which, and I think most of us can, uh, a workplace environment where you worked for a loveless Nazi. Not a literal Nazi, but like a really mean person. 
I had a gunnery sergeant in the Marine Corps who did not like me for the entire time I was there. I don't know why he had it out for me, but I remember him. He's in my enemy hall of fame. Still remember his name and his face. I've looked him up to see if I could find him. Can't. We have a boss like that. What happens, and I know what happens because I know what the rest of us underneath him did. You know, gather into our own pockets and talk about how horrible he is. Man, just, I hope he drives his car off a cliff. I hope he breaks his leg. And the other thing would happen is you create code words, right? As the troops for this gunnery sergeant, this code word. That you could say in front of him that he doesn't know what you're talking about, but it's everybody else is laughing because it's completely humiliating, right? Code words. That tends to be what happens when you have an enemy in the workplace, especially if he or she is in management. And the disciple of Jesus has to stop and say, okay, now I can just go with the flow and be a part of the problem, be a part of the animosity, part of the division, or maybe I need to risk um, being liked and I just need to not participate in those things and I need to figure out how is it that I can connect to this loveless Nazi's heart? To pray about it and f- watch. His family's sick. I'm going to send him a card. And you can fill in the rest. But that's, that's the kind of stuff we have to be doing. Um, if, if we're to be used by God to change other people. And that's, that's, the, that's the power of, of love crossing those lines. You see? I mean, you, you don't thaw an icy heart. With more ice. You don't thaw an icy heart with more ice, but by constancy of warmth and love. So I would encourage you, based upon what Jesus has told here, us here, it's just, yes, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Let the warmth of your life be consistent. Let it be the pattern of your existence. And just watch what the Lord does in your life and through your life and, and knowing that God is pleased with you. And you resemble him as you live this way. Imminently practical. How are you going to respond, church, this week? How are you going to put Jesus' words into action? Father, I pray for us as we get ready to take communion this morning that you would grant us um, just a heart to recognize that the elements on the table right before us are symbols of your grace coming to us while we were yet enemies. Um, and you have made us family members. You've made uh, uh, foes friends. So uh, humble us, Lord. Allow us to live this out in our daily life. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. We're going to take communion now, and if you've never taken it with us, um, I invite you to come forward um, in just a moment. And if I could have those who are serving communion come forward. Yeah, we have both gluten and non-gluten. You just need to ask for it. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is for you. If not, we just kindly ask you just um, 